Hey, today we're launching the new sermon series. And I'm, okay, okay. Whew, good start, okay. Um, I am personally grateful to sort of set us out into this journey for the next um, couple weeks. And so um, the series will be about seven weeks, but I'm excited to kind of launch us throughout these next couple weeks. Our series is gonna be called Formed. And our focus is gonna be on discipleship to Jesus. And so to start us with that, I, I wanna talk personally to you about this last year. Um, for me and, and for you, I'm sure as well, this last year has been challenging in so many ways. It's been disorienting. I'm sure that many of you, maybe if you've walked around our city, have wondered like, where am I? Maybe throughout your life or throughout this, this last year, you've, you've felt an experience of disillusionment, like what is actually happening? I think there's a common thing that each person has felt in the last year, and to put it in a word, it's disappointment. Like this deep sense of this is not what I signed up for. I just spent a few days with pastors from all over the states and one of the talks um, was on pastoral wounds. The wounds that we carry and receive as pastors and there was this sort of collective agreement amongst a hundred or so pastors in this room that 2020 and 2021 was not what I signed up for. This is not what I went to seminary for and they didn't talk about this in seminary so I feel a little let down by my education. So. <laughs> Every person, I think, feels that sense. This is not what I signed up for. Whether that's a business owner who's had to lay off employees or a college student who's spending ridiculous amounts of tuition to sit on Zoom or at best to sit isolated in their dorm room and learn. And probably the parents or grandparents who are paying for that education are feeling that as well. This is not what we signed up for. I've had some friends who have gotten engaged and married throughout the last 18 months and just watched them struggle and struggle to plan a wedding, to, um, to go to whittle a, a list of people from like 150 to like 10, you know, and to try to have this day to celebrate the beginning of the rest of their lives together. I, I'm thinking of homeschool parents and in particular, like single homeschool parents who became homeschool parents out of um, necessity, not like a deep sense of calling, like this is the only thing that we can do right now. I'm thinking of friends of mine who are people of color, who the moment they start to talk about their experience in America, they're immediately labeled a Marxist or a communist. Every person and maybe, maybe you resonate with something in there. Maybe you don't resonate with a lot of that. But every person over this last year has felt to some degree that this is not what I signed up for. I felt that. And I'm not saying that I felt that more than you or that I felt that less than you. I'm just saying I felt that because it's a common experience. But again, I want to speak personally to you this morning because something has happened in my life over this last year and a half or so, and it's really been kind of the impetus for this sermon series. God's been uniquely and profoundly kind to me this last year. And, and I can only put it in, this is the only phrase that I can think of 
of how to put what I, what I mean, but I'll just say it this way. Jesus has never looked better to me. Jesus has never looked better. Jesus has never been more compelling to me. I've never been more curious about Jesus than I am at this moment in my life. I've never been more convinced of his saving power. I've never been more motivated to find evidence of his saving power. Last week, we had a baptism out on the lawn. It was amazing. Many of you were there. I was there. I baptized my 11-year-old son, which was a profound moment. Now, the last week, I... I, had, I did two memorial services. Again, this is not like a pity party, but I like held it together for two memorial services last week. And then I got to the baptism of my son and I was undone. It was awkward, probably for people. I don't think I said a word other than, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which makes it legit. <laughs> there is a video somewhere on the internet of this whole experience. And it's not just that, like in my family, but I've been looking, I've been on a quest to find evidence of the saving power of Jesus because he has never, ever looked better. He's never seemed truer to me. I've never been more convinced that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I realize that that statement can kind of split a room. And what, here's what I mean by that. I'm sure that there are some, and I pray that there are some here in this room or watching at home that are not yet sure about what you think about Jesus. And while we believe wholeheartedly here that Jesus' call to follow me is given to all people, he says, come and follow me. But also for many, he says, just come and see Check it out. Listen to my teachings. Learn from my ways. So if you're on that journey where you're not sure yet of what you think about Jesus, you are welcome here, but he is going to turn your life upside down. So what's awakened in me has been this hunger to worship Jesus, a curiosity about him, but also what's awakened in me is an obsession to understand how it is that Jesus forms his disciples. How is it that Jesus takes these 11 disciples and he changes the world? What does he actually do? Not just with the 11, but all of his disciples. How does Jesus form his disciples? Two questions that this series is gonna get after. Um, and, over the next seven weeks or so. The, the first question is, how does Jesus form his disciples? How does he actually do that? How does he transform them? And the second question is, where does Jesus form disciples? So we'll spend a couple weeks thinking, you know, how, how is it that Jesus does this? What are some of his methods? And then we'll spend about four weeks considering where Jesus forms his disciples and Spoiler alert, it's in the church. That's where he does it. So you don't even have to listen to the last four weeks. It's gonna, you know it. So what I mean by that is that we're not gonna sort of end with a personal like discipleship devotional plan. The goal is communal transformation. That's what we're after. What kind of community are we cultivating here? Okay, so that's the plan. But today is introductory. And today we need to get at, I think, what is perhaps the most important question 
in this series, and it's perhaps the most obvious question, and that is, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? What do we even mean when we use that, that common word in Christian vernacular? We take that word disciple, which was intended to be an identity word, we'll talk about that, and we turn it into sort of like a vague verb. We say things like, I'm discipling you, or who are you discipling, and what do we mean? We mean, who are you going to coffee with once a month? Now, let me be clear. Going to coffee is better than not going to coffee, okay? But discipleship is more than like a monthly or a quarterly coffee hang, right? It has to be more than that when we pay attention to the life and ways of Jesus, our Lord. So I've been thinking about this a lot this, this year. It's um, it's important question. What is a disciple? And so I'm going to present to you sort of a, a, a working or kind of living. It's not like a rigid definition, but it is a bit of a definition for what a disciple actually is. And this has come out of a lot of conversations amongst pastors and leaders in our church. And I'm going to give primary credit to my dear friend, Derek Dahlmeyer, who I work with in community life. We've come up with a bit of a definition of what a disciple is. And before I give you that, will you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28? And we're going to read verses 16 to 20. And God's word will give us a vision of who a disciple is. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, what I'll say to you simply is this, is these are Jesus' final words in the gospel according to Matthew to his disciples who would shortly thereafter change the world. Here's what he told them. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here's a disciple. A disciple is someone who entrust themselves to Jesus as Savior and Lord and teacher. I'll say it again. A disciple is someone who entrusts themselves to Jesus as Savior, Lord, and teacher. You might want to write that down. That is not an exhaustive definition of a disciple. It's surely more than that, but it is not less than that. And so when we think about a disciple, we want to consider first and foremost our vision of Jesus. Who is Jesus? If we are to be his disciples, the first thing that we would need to know is who he actually is. And the reason that we are using these words, our text from the end of Jesus' earthly ministry as a guide, as we think about a definition of a disciple, is because this is the point where the disciples of Jesus can no longer think of him only as an itinerant rabbi from Nazareth that did some pretty impressive teaching in the region of Galilee. He has to be more than that. 
So I want to draw you back to the text that we just read, okay? Because that text really has informed this definition of what a disciple is, okay? First, just a few things to notice in the passage of Scripture. Jesus begins these kind of final marching orders for his disciples by telling them this. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That is his entryway in. What is he saying? He's saying, I am the risen Lord of all. And so a disciple is one who entrusts themselves to that risen Lord, Jesus, who has all authority. And any demands that he makes on one of his followers' life, he has every right to do that. Why? Because all authority has been given to him. The second thing to notice in this passage is that Jesus instructs his disciples to make disciples, and part of that process is by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about this in a minute, but baptism is a picture or an illustration of the saving power of Jesus Christ in a person's life. So every disciple of Jesus needs a saving encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Third thing to notice is this. Jesus tells his disciples that they, he's talking to, at this point, the 11 disciples. He tells them this. He says, you're going to become the teachers now. And he says, when you make disciples, I want you to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there it is. A disciple entrusts themselves to Jesus as Savior. A disciple entrusts themselves to Jesus as risen Lord. And a disciple entrusts himself to Jesus as the one who teaches them how to live in his kingdom. Anybody with me? It's right there. Okay. So here's what I want to talk about today. What happens? What happens if you limit your vision of Jesus to one and not all of those realities about him? How does this affect you as a disciple of Jesus? So we're going to spend part of our time today considering the importance of holding up this holistic vision of Jesus. We'll consider what is, what is Savior-only discipleship? What is Lord-only discipleship? And what is teacher-only discipleship? So what we're saying is, what is it like when you don't hold all three of those? What can happen in your life as you follow Jesus? Let's start with this idea of savior-only discipleship. And let me be abundantly clear before the emails start flying out at me. Jesus is the only savior. Absolutely and totally. Oh my, am I, like last week, if you didn't come to the baptism, you, you should feel the ultimate level of FOMO right now. Do people still say FOMO? I don't, but witnessing the saving power of Jesus in a human life is profound. Okay, so here's, here's what we mean. So in our baptism class, we teach people that baptism is an illustration of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So when a person goes under the waters of baptism, they are, because of the cross of Christ, now dead to sin. And when they come out of the waters of baptism, they are raised to new life. Just as Jesus was raised to new life, he came out of the grave. We go under the water to represent that burial of Jesus. We come out to represent the re resurrection of Jesus. And what's true of Jesus is true of us. And so 
For every disciple of Jesus, it is imperative that you have a saving encounter with him, that you see him as savior. But I want to be clear, he is more than that. If our vision ends with just Jesus as my personal savior, what kind of effect does that have on us as a disciple? If it sort of just ends there with my personal Jesus, well, I know a lot of Christians and, and their vision starts and ends with he's my savior, but here's how that plays out oftentimes. We view discipleship to Jesus as sort of just a salvation and then what happens in that is Jesus hands you a card when he saves you. And you know what that card is? It's a get out of hell free card. Or in another way, maybe a positive way of looking at it, it's a ticket to heaven. How's that? A little more generous. And so we, so we receive that and we begin to think that discipleship to Jesus is more about the afterlife, if you will, than our actual real life. And you will never find that in the teachings of Jesus, that he's only, con he's only concerned about where you're going after you die and not how you live in the real world that he's placed you in. And so our, 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 if we hold this, this salvation-only vision of a disciple, then our evangelism methods will be like this. This was me like growing up as a kid in the 90s. Like some, if you even get the courage to talk to someone about Jesus, you start by saying something like this. If you died tonight, what would happen to your soul? People are like, what? Like evangelism tactics were not like inviting somebody to an alpha course or Christianity Explored. It was like, will you come and, and listen to this dramatic presentation of heaven's gates and hell's flames? Anybody? Is that, was that just my, uh, that was like a real like traveling circus in my upbringing. Let me be clear. I believe that heaven and hell are real places that real people go to. I genuinely believe that. But if our discipleship to Jesus is only concerned, again, with what happens when we die, then it will not impact what happens as we live. And Jesus desperately wants to impact the way that you live. So that's savior only discipleship. I think that there's sort of a form that leads us to our next one of what I'm gonna call Lord only discipleship. What is Lord only discipleship? Well, I believe that there's a form of discipleship that is merely theoretical. It's people who are like, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord. I, I believe that. I even sing about that in between coffee sips on a Sunday morning. It's like lip service discipleship to Jesus that's sort of, it's, it's lip service to Jesus combined with um, good deeds. Okay, and here's what I mean. Jesus talks about this actually at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, this, I read this this week and this was sobering. In, at the end of chapter seven of Matthew, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, now listen to this, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your names and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is different than salvation-only discipleship. This is sort of 
almost like an imposter form of discipleship. Right before this, Jesus talks about wolves who would, they're, they're saying the name of Jesus, they're calling Jesus Lord, and they even appear to be doing good deeds in the name of Jesus, but Jesus says to them, I don't know you. Is it possible to identify as a disciple of Jesus? To even call him Lord and to do some good deeds on his behalf and not know him. That's why Lord only discipleship won't work. We need a real and living relationship with Jesus, which is only possible because of his saving work on the cross. And so again, we can't just hold up one of these visions of discipleship without the others. We need him as savior and Lord, and we need him as our teacher as well. Now I wanna talk about teacher only discipleship. And I'll say this, this series that we're gonna enter into will spend a significant amount of time considering Jesus as teacher. And that is because when you read the gospels of Jesus, they are constantly calling him teacher. And the word disciple in its Greek and Hebrew form actually gets after this idea of a learner. So we have to connect discipleship to Jesus as a teacher and us as a learner. In fact, next week we'll spend a ton of time talking about that. Jesus, in fact, says in the Great Commission, we just read this, he tells them, teach my disciples to obey everything that I have commanded you. Jesus even says that. He says, you need, you disciples are gonna become the teachers and I need you to teach others, other disciples to obey everything that I've commanded you. The Greek word for everything is everything. That's not a good joke, is it? Okay. I looked it up, I was like, is it special? It's like, no, it's not. The Greek word for all is all. The Greek word for everything is everything. Jesus actually means it. You need to teach people how to obey everything that I've commanded you. But what are the dangers of thinking about Jesus only as a teacher? Teacher only discipleship. Is there a danger in that? And I would say there is a profound danger in that. In the year 2007, I, I heard about a book that really interested me. It was a book released by a journalist named A.J. Jacobs, who wrote for Esquire magazine and lived in New York City. Jacobs, is, he's a different kind of writer. Basically, he would take up massive life-altering assignments um, and then write about them in like a journal memoir kind of format. One of his books is about how he read the entire Encyclopedia Britannica from front to back. And you better be a really good writer if you want somebody to read about you reading the Encyclopedia Britannica. And he is a really good writer. And his second book was the book that I read because uh, I didn't want to read about him reading the Encyclopedia Britannica. But I did want to read this book. And this book was called The Year of Living Biblically. And it is absolutely hysterical. I'm talking like laugh out loud funny. And yet... It's a tragedy as well, and I'll explain why in a minute. So AJ describes himself as an agnostic Jew, okay? And I, this is one of my favorite lines I've ever read. He, he described himself as an agnostic Jew, and he says this. He says, I'm officially Jewish, but in the same way that the Olive Garden is Italian. Okay, that's, that's good. That's, that's, I, if you don't think that's funny, you're gonna, gonna hate listening to me preach, but... Um, so what he does is he takes up this assignment to do everything possible within his power 
to follow every single thing that the Bible teaches for an entire year. And he is just, he's so earnest. He's so like, okay, so he grows his beard out. He never wears clothing of mixed fibers. That's in there. I don't know if you read that part of Leviticus, but it's in there. He tries to be a shepherd on the streets of Manhattan. He rigorously practices Sabbath. Was my favorite part. He meets a man who is a self-proclaimed adulterer and AJ asks him if he can stone him. <laughs> because it's, you know, Mosaic law, right? It's, it's in there. Like with pebbles, it's so, it's so funny. He's like, can I just, okay. So, so at the end of the book is him spending the latter part of the year and he's, he's trying to do this. He's trying to obey all of the teachings of Jesus. And so he disciples under Jesus. And he's so earnest in the book. And he's even disciplined and devoted, far more devoted than many of us could say in our discipleship to Jesus. But there is a tragic reality. He has no vision of Jesus as savior and Lord and teacher. And so he misses everything because he views Jesus as just teacher and subsequently just another teacher. And so at the end of the book, and this is the tragic part of the end of the book, is that he advocates in the end for what he calls cafeteria-style spirituality. Basically, he says this, Jesus had some great teachings, and the Bible has some good things to say, but what you have to do is you have to pick and choose, like walking down the cafeteria line in your college, you know, in your college calf, or walking down the line at Hometown Buffet or Sizzler, and you just pick what you want. I'll take a little bit of this from Jesus, but there's no way I'm eating that or taking that on. So how does that look? It looks actually not just like, like him in the book, but it looks like a lot of us. We say yes to Jesus on the golden rule, but absolutely no to his vision of sexuality. Treat others the way you wanna be treated? Who's in, who isn't in for that? But anyone who looks at someone with lust has committed adultery in their heart. Gotta pass on that one, right? Do you wanna gain your life? This is a teaching of Jesus. Do you wanna gain your life? Yes, yes I wanna gain my life. Then you'll have to lose your life. Oh. Cafeteria, spirituality. Love your enemies? Sure, yeah, we should probably do that. But really, it depends on which enemy we're talking about, right? Because AJ doesn't know that Jesus uniquely fulfilled the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that was built around atonement from sin and cleansing from sin, he's practicing things that the Bible, and in particular Jesus, would not want us to practice. Because he doesn't have a vision of him as Savior. And because he doesn't have a vision of Jesus as Lord, it's sort of like you can take it or leave it and then you're stuck with teacher-only discipleship where you kind of pick and choose the things you like. And who isn't guilty of that? I know I am. A disciple is someone who entrusts themselves to Jesus as Savior, Lord, and teacher. That's an identity that we must take a hold of. It's a vision of who Jesus is, but it places us properly under his leadership in our life. We recognize 
There's no way that I could come to the Father relationally apart from Jesus, my Savior. And we recognize that Jesus actually has the authority to call the shots in my life, but he's not some sort of distant king dictating a way of life. He's the teacher that comes alongside and says, I'll I'll show you the way and I'll teach you a new way to be human. And so that's where we're headed in this series. A series where we begin all of this by taking on the identity of Jesus. Getting a vision of the identity of Jesus. Savior, Lord, and teacher. So how do we actually do that? We're going to discover that. But at this point, the lecture portion of this talk is over. And I need to tell you something that's of the utmost importance. Jesus doesn't end the Great Commission, this sort of instructions on who a disciple is. He doesn't end by saying, teach them to do all that I've commanded you. He actually says this at the end of, if we can go back to verse 20 of Matthew 28, this is important that we see this. He does say, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. But then he ends by saying this, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's his last word in this teaching. He says, I am with you. What does he mean by saying I'm with you? If we know that he's about to ascend to the right hand of the father where he sits as the king of kings and lord of lords, what does it mean for him to say I am with you always? Well, you don't have to turn there, but you, you did turn there a few weeks ago. Luke's gospel, at the end of Luke's gospel in Luke 24, verse 49, Luke is giving a similar kind of commission that Matthew gives at the end of Matthew's gospel. But Luke says it this way when he talks about Jesus being with us. He says this, behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Luke says it this way, Jesus is going to be with you, but he's going to be with you by sending the promise, which is the spirit of God. And the spirit of God is going to activate and empower you as a disciple to live for Christ in this world. And there is no other way that it can happen unless we have the Holy Spirit of God. Anyone? I'll end with a story that has haunted me for years now. And um, it's kind of a gospel Bible story. You don't have to turn there, I'll just tell it to you. At the end of John's gospel, in chapter 18, something amazing happens. Jesus is brought, um, Jesus is arrested. Many of you know the story. Jesus is arrested and he's brought before two men, Annas and Caiaphas, after he is arrested, the high priest. And John says that Peter and another disciple followed at a distance. So we're, we're talking about two disciples, Peter, and John describes a disciple that, um, another disciple, and just like when John does that in his gospel, he's talking about himself, okay? It's like a form of self-preservation. He's like, I don't wanna tell you how bad I was, but so Peter and John are following at a distance. And these two disciples of Jesus who had walked with him for for years, who'd been learning his ways, who had been discovering more and more of who he is, it's now coming to the end of Jesus's life. And even though they've walked with him, they stand at a distance, cowardly, 
afraid to stand up for Jesus in front of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. They watched his mock trial from a distance and they stood and hid in fear. Now fast forward. After the death resurrection of Jesus, after the great commission, and after Pentecost in Luke chapter two where the Holy Spirit is poured out onto them, we find ourselves in Acts four. And just like go home and read this, Acts four, Peter and John. This is possibly a couple months later after they hid in fear from Jesus in his worst moment, something has happened to them. And it wasn't a couple months of quiet reflection or a discipleship method. Something far more powerful has happened to them than that. The spirit of God had been poured out on them and it had filled them. And so what had happened in their life is they began to do the things that Jesus did, but from a place of faith. And so in Acts chapter four, Peter and John have been arrested for healing the lame beggar man. Maybe you remember the story and they're brought before who? Annas and Caiaphas, the two men that they had no courage to stand before in Jesus's trial. Now they're brought before him. And it tells us this, this is one of my favorite moments in the scriptures and in the book of Acts. It says, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he testified of the goodness of Jesus. He said, that lame beggar man who's been healed, he was healed by the Messiah that you crucified. And he goes on to say some of these famous words from the scripture. And there is no other name under heaven that we could be saved than that Jesus. So here's a question. What happens that transforms these cowardly disciples in John 18 to bold proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus in Acts chapter four. It's not a method, it's not a process, it's a person and it's the spirit of God, amen? So we can't have a conversation or a season in our church where we talk about being formed as disciples of Jesus and not talk about the spirit of God. So let me be clear. If you are in Christ, the spirit of God is in you. I believe that wholeheartedly. But what we need is like something that happened to Peter who had the spirit of God, but then was filled with the spirit of God, empowered for witness. His faith was activated by the spirit of God. He couldn't just see Jesus as a teacher anymore. He did see him as that, but he was the savior and risen Lord and it changed his life. Does anybody here need to be filled with the spirit of God? Do you need that? I'll, leave, I'll, I'll say I grew up Pentecostal, so I got some roots or whatever, but that fresh filling of God's spirit so that you can walk in boldness for Jesus. I told you this morning when we started, I'll invite the band up. I don't know where we're going with this, but I told you at the beginning of this message that I'd had an experience in my life where Jesus had never looked better. And that has carried me through this last year and a half. That was the spirit of God. The spirit of God's agenda in my life and in your life is to magnify Jesus. That's what he does. He wants to magnify Jesus. He wants to give you a greater vision of Jesus, 
a greater hope in Jesus. He wants to transform you so that you can walk with Jesus in all of life. So we are, we are wise to come to a gathering like this and say, Spirit of God, fill us today. Fill us anew. Show us Jesus. Magnify Jesus in our hearts and minds. Give us a vision of Jesus that transcends the noise of our culture and the anger of our culture, the godless ways of our culture. Give us a vision of Jesus. The Spirit of God can do that in you, and he will if you ask him.